It's a joy to be before you to speak the word of God. Uh, it's a great privilege to do so. Um, I'm kind of uh, pinch hitting for our pastor James. Um, we've been on uh, kind of uh, eggshells, kind of waiting for this baby to arrive, and didn't know if uh, when the baby would come and if our pastor would be able to to preach. Uh, last some sun Sunday, as you guys know, there was a couple of uh, backup plans, and uh, Jane, when James uh, and Sarin had their baby on Monday, um, it was already in place that I would preach this Sunday. Um, haven't seen James in the office all week, um, but I actually I did see him for one hour, um, on, I think on Wednesday, and he came in, he was looking kind of tired, um, walked into the office, and he had dropped Sarin off at the hospital just uh, for a clinic there, and he was going to go back and pick her up uh, in an hour. He had to check his email and stuff like that, but he just said, you know, um, I, I knew it was going to be hard, um, but it's harder than I thought. And so I could tell he was tired and it was a new experience and I'm um, just really thankful for, he was really joyful though, he was just gleaming and was able to see uh, the baby, it looks just like, uh, I think both of them. Uh, and yeah, just uh, keep, keep them in prayer and I'm realizing you know, I don't think I've ever been as close to uh, parents and uh, newborns um, as I am now, and I've never experienced any of this stuff. And I didn't think it was that difficult, but after talking with James, it is difficult. And realizing that all the parents who just had newborns are going through the same things, um, and we can all, all be in prayer for them as they're transitioning um, in their new area of life. Well, let's uh, begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll look to our scriptures today. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this uh, morning, Lord, that we can come and worship you, Lord. We just thank you for the wonderful songs that we're able to sing unto worship to you, Lord. And we reflect on the love of Christ for us and the love of God has shown through the Son. And we just thank you for our salvation and giving us the gift of grace that we can live um, in your presence, that we can have eternal life. And we thank you, as our brother Huey testified, uh, of the work that you do in every believer's life, the work of justification and the process of sanctification where you are growing us to be more like your son. Today, Lord, we come before your word and we see that um, in light of uh, these things that you've done for us, God, that there are certain things that you enable us to do, especially in your church. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us today through our Apostle Paul the importance of some things uh, when we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you would use me, Lord, um, as your humble servant to articulate the words of Scripture in a clear, powerful, in meaningful way, O oh God, and may I not impose my own opinions or thoughts upon the text, but may you allow me to, by your spirit, to um, really bring the text to light. Lord, I just thank you for each person here, and I pray that the word will go out and faithfully um, do its work in each believer's life here, Lord, that it would transform us and spur us on toward uh, holiness and toward uh, greater worship of you in our lives. Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful day, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
Well, at Cornerstone, I think one of the things that I think a lot of us would say, which is, um, I guess, fairly unique in churches today, is that we love doctrine, right? We love doctrine. We love the great truths of Scripture. Um, I love doctrine. I'm so thankful that I'm in my final stretch of my uh, theological career. Um, I'm getting a master's degree in theology, and I love doctrine. I love studying it. I love reading about it. I love talking about it. Um, in fact, I was talking to another pastor friend, not in this church, but he said um, um, he was talking about uh, his love for theology, and he said he used to talk with his buddy and said we should just go to China and um, purchase a watermelon farm and just uh, sell watermelons uh, all day and just sit there and talk theology for the rest of our lives. Wouldn't that be great? Um, but is that all that doctrine and theology is for? Um, just to talk about and debate? I think there is, yes, uh, um, part of that is, is the case. We should talk about theology. We should talk about doctrine. We should wrestle with these truths of the faith. But Apostle Paul, I think, would say that's a one side of the coin only. If you read any of his letters in the Bible, you will see that, yes, Paul taught doctrine. In fact, he taught deep doctrine, and truth was expected to be upheld by the church uh, when Paul taught these truths, and they are important for our lives. But these doctrines are not just to be discussed or debated, but they're to make a difference in our lives, in the way we live. I would say that Apostle Paul would say Christianity is primarily a way of life. It's a way of life. Doctrine is important because it teaches us how we are to live. You know, the first Christians, they were, they were um, called people of the quote-unquote the way. And this didn't just merely mean that they were following a particular way but also because they lived a particular way, and especially because they died in a particular way. It was very notable that when um, they would be persecuted and asked to denounce their faith, that they would die um, um, strong. They would die without renouncing Christ, and they would be martyred for their faith. And this, this made an impact, and in, in, in the people who said they were people of the way were not Christians, but non-Christians looking at them. So it's vital that practice must proceed out of doctrine. Doctrine must affect life and the way we live. I think we all know that. But when you think of a person's life, when you think of your life, what is your life mostly centered upon? What encompasses most of your life? Um, I would say that one of those things that really encompasses your life are relationships, right? Relationships. Our life is full of relationships. Isn't that true? Relationships with our families, our parents, our spouses, our brothers and sisters, our, uh, some of us, our children, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and most importantly, our relationship to God, right? And with God. Life is for the most part about re relating to um, one another. One party relating to another party. So, if doctrine is to be practical in our lives, if doctrine is to be applied in our life, then it should somehow touch on how we are to relate to one another. Think about it. 
What is the greatest commandment? Remember when the scribes and Pharisees, one of the scribes asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? He had a two-parter, right? He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that in Mark? Christianity, he sums up, or the law he sums up is relationship to God and relationship to people. And that really summarizes the Christian life. Love for God and love for people. Now today as we look at the book of Romans, I'm going to hit on this second aspect of the greatest commandment. Loving our neighbor or loving people. I'm going to go one step further. Get more specific and really we're going to look at how we are to love our fellow Christian. How we are to love our fellow Christians here at Cornerstone Bible Church. How we are to love the people that are sitting next to us. Today we're going to learn um, really uh, how we are to relate to one another in love. So let's open up our Bibles if you haven't already to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now obviously um, we're going in the middle of Romans. We're not starting at the beginning. So let me give a little bit of background to this letter to the Romans. I told you that Paul liked giving doctrine, teaching, and then he usually had a, a, the latter part of the letters apply it to life. Well, he's done that in Romans for us and for the church there. And he has taken the first 11 chapters of Romans to speak of the mercies of God. He goes into great detail um, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's proclaimed the glorious truths of salvation from all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that God demonstrates his, to God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, to thank the Lord for our worship team, I, 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 t I emailed Mike the passage, what we're going to um, talk about this weekend. He was able to give some songs about Christ's love. So really, through song, we're able to worship through the first 11 chapters. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are sons of God, kinsmen of the King, heirs with Christ. Um, talking about we do not love, but, but we love because God first loved us. These songs have prepared our hearts and really given us a review of the first 11 chapters of Romans. And now, uh, with that in mind, we hit Romans chapter 12. And this is where Paul kind of transitions into his practical teaching. How this deep these deep truths affect um, how we live as Christians. In Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, let me just read that for you. Look there. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living, living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, imperfect. Notice in verse 1 it says, I urge you therefore. What Paul is basically saying in light of chapters 1 through 12, therefore here are some things that uh, should affect your behavior because the enabling, the enabling grace that God has worked in your lives. This is what God has enabled and this is what God expects of all of us as Christians. The behavior 
is what um, we're going to look at next. Verses 3 through 8 goes through and describes um, our spiritual gifts as we work as members, as individual parts, as members of the body of Christ. And he continues on the theme of looking toward the church, the body of Christ, in verses 9 through 13. And now he is moving on to describe how love is demonstrated within the body of Christ, within the church. Um, you'll see as we go through, this is kind of like a spitfire approach to um, teaching. He kind of just shoots off different exhortations and it's really um, seems like it's not related or it's kind of just different uh, themes of scripture giving, giving, uh, given to the Roman Christians. But I believe they're all related to his first exhortation. 9 through 13 are related to his first exhortation. And we'll see what that is in just a moment. Well, today we're going to focus on these verses, 9 through 13, as the, what is necessary for us as Christians to do when we walk in our relationships with those amongst us in the church. So let's look at verse 9 now. And I want to give you a little bit of introduction to the passage as we look here. Verse 9 says, and it starts off, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Paul begins with an exhortation. He's not just describing things here, but he's giving an exhortation, a command. But notice, he has an assumption here. He has an assumption that the believers in Rome understand what exactly love is. Otherwise, why would he say, you shouldn't be a hypocrite? Right? He shouldn't love hypocritically. But do we understand what love is? And so I need to touch base with you on some assumptions that Paul already had when he was speaking to the church at Rome. Do we understand what love is? Do we really know what love is? Well, um, when I just mentioned that, things may have crossed your mind. Um, we may think we know what love is. And you know what? I guarantee every one of you has a definition of love. You may have never studied um, love in the Bible. You've never looked it up in a dictionary. You've never uh, read a book about love or something like that. But you know something about, quote unquote, love. How do I know this? Well, I know this is because each one of you has been taught, like I have, about love. We've been taught by our family. We've been taught by our experience. We've been taught especially by the world. And even in our, you know, our technological, media-driven society, even more the world is teaching us about what love is through TV, through movies, through media. They all bombard us with a particular view of love. It's not neutral. It's pushing something at us, and we are sucking it up like a sponge. We are constantly being fed this. What are we being fed? Well, in the world, sometimes love is equated to sex, right? Um, or other times, it's related to unexplainable feelings one, one gets. You know, I can't explain this thing called love. It's also seen as give and take. 
I love you and you love me, right? It's very conditional. Um, as long as I get something back, I will love. It's also in questions that we hear. Do you believe in love at first sight? Right? And we have a certain thing in mind there. Or we have the saying, love conquers all. Right? And it gives kind of excuses for maybe um, different things. Or if it's in a loving way or if we, we, we've done this in love, then it's okay. Um, some others see love as sentimentality, etc. Now, I'm not going to go through all the different things, but this is just a taste of what the world is teaching us. The world is not neutral in its view of love. Um, and you have been influenced by it. You cannot say that you have not been. Um, and we need to have a correct view of love. If, in fact, what the world is teaching us is wrong, then we need to throw out some things and bring in some things as the Bible teaches us. Well, suffice it to say, without going into a whole teaching on that, um, Apostle Paul did not have any of the above things that I mentioned in mind when he assumed the definition of love in Romans. In fact, um, all you have to do is look to Romans chapter 13, and you will find an entire chapter that Paul goes into great detail about what love is. If you read that chapter, you'll find that love's not a feeling. Love's not sentimentality, but love is action. It's practice. It's things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And you'll know that there are specific things that we are to do, and that uh, really is what love is. Um, also, we understand through the Bible as a whole, and we understand here in verse 9 when Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, that this word love is the Greek, is the English for what Greek word? Agape, right? We've heard it many times. The word agape, which, is, which was the deepest, strongest, and greatest word for love in the Greek language during that time. Agape was a word that Paul used to express God's love for us. And he is saying here that we should be animated in our living by the kind of love by which God has loved us. Up to this point in Romans, God, um, Paul has used this word agape, speaking specifically toward the divine love toward us. This is the first time in the book of Romans he used this same word, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, for our relation to one another. So here are the two things that we have to assume Paul is, um, well, two assumptions that Paul has when he's speaking to the church of Rome. What I just said now, number one is love is a response to God's love for us. Romans 5, 5 through 8. Love is a response to God's love to us. First and foremost, it's a response to the divine love. And secondly, something we have to note is that what I just said about 1 Corinthians 13. Love is action. Love is not just a feeling or sentimentality, but love is action. And so these are a couple things that 
Paul is, is assuming when he approaches verses 9 through 13 here, and we have to understand that before we even approach this. Now let's go back to verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. What is Paul saying there? Well, Paul is commanding the Roman Christians. Another way to put it is, let love be genuine, if you want to put it in the positive. Let love be genuine, or let love be sincere. The phrase without hypocrisy in the Greek was used uh, as a, a term for hypocrite, but really for a play actor who projects an image and hides behind that identity, an actor or an actress. So Paul is basically saying, don't be playing a part, or don't be playing a role. Um, your love must be genuine and sincere. So Paul is warning the church at Rome, he's warning us against deceit or even self-deception when loving our fellow Christian. But how can we know that our love is without hypocrisy? How can we know that our love is genuine? How can we know that it's sincere? Well, Paul, as we go into the marks now, gives us evidences of genuine or true love. Today, as you look in your outline there, we're going to discover five marks or five characteristics of genuine love in the church. Five marks or five characteristics of genuine love in the church. You can also say five marks of Christian action, if you will, if you want to take that assumption number two in mind. So he's teaching us how love is manifest in the church. Now, I want to give you an introduction to examine your heart as we look through these things. Examine yourself throughout. You're going to see some of these points and you're going to say, wow, that's convicting. You know, I, I really need to do that. Other points you're going to say, you know, I think I'm striving in that area. And praise God for that. And I, I want to commend you for those things. So here I, I really think that we should not ignore some things and we should really have some encouragement in other things. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to go through the, the principle and in each uh, each point, we're going to have an application. We're going to try to bring it home. What does it mean to us here at Cornerstone? Okay? And so let's look at mark number one, as we looked at the marks of genuine love in the church. Number one, fill in the blank. Love is not directionless emotion, but is based on righteousness. Or you can put holiness there. Love is not directionless emotion, but based on righteousness. Verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. And I think the two phrases after that are connected to that first um, exhortation. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So Paul is saying genuine love will abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So genuine love cannot be separated from righteousness or holiness. If you say you're, love, you're loving, you cannot say you are lacking in pursuing righteousness or holiness. Genuine Christian love, Paul is suggesting, is not directionless emotion or something that can only be felt or expressed. 
Love is genuine when it leads to hating evil and holding on to the good. Not subjective emotion, not sentimental feelings, but based on truth, right and wrong, good and evil. Now this term abhor, it's a very strong term. It, 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 can, it means hatred or hate exceedingly or hate violently. The first aspect, we really need to hate what is evil. The second thing is equally as strong, the word cling. It's a strong term used to join together or unite. It's used of the marriage relationship. And it's also used of sticking two pieces of wood together with glue. So what Paul is saying here is stick yourself to the good with glue or as glue. Cement yourself to it if you like. Join yourself or fasten yourself so firmly to the good that you cannot be separated from it. And what is the good? The good is the truth as defined in the absolute truth of the, the scriptures, of the holy scriptures. The Bible is, shows us what's good. It also shows us what we should hate or abhor. So, true love is not passive about evil, but it should, first of all, have an intense revulsion toward evil. Evil is not to be tolerated, but it's, be, it's to be despised. Why? Because it's injurious and it's wicked. One commentator said this, and I quote, Where there is love, evil is abhorred, not merely lamented, much less covered up, but hated, end quote. And conversely, righteousness, uh, the righteous have a strong affinity for what is good. So they seek it fervently and they cling to it no matter what the cost. Here's a quote by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, kind of summarizing our passage here. He says this, and I quote, we are, to be, we are being called to a passion for holiness and a passion for truth. If you regard the Christian life and the commandments of God as hard and grievous and narrow and are sometimes tempted to give them all up, then it's because you know nothing about God and about his love. What you need is not to be reminded of the commandments, but be, to be reminded of him and his holy nature and his love for you, his grace to you who deserved nothing but punishment in hell. You love and hate and you are consumed by a passion to serve God who has done so much for you through his dear son, the God who did not spare his son but delivered him up for you. And you show your gratitude to him by doing everything you can to please him and to be well-pleasing in his sight." End quote. So point number one is love is not directionless emotion, but it's based on righteousness. So how does this apply to our church? Some applications here. Some things we ought to do, okay? Well, first, we ought to be concerned about maintaining and encouraging holiness in our fellow believers. We ought to be concerned about maintaining and encouraging holiness to our fellow believer. If our love is to be genuine, we have to actively seek on how we can sharpen one another in holiness and righteousness. And our basis is what? The Word of God. It's not opinion. It's not preference. But it's the Word of God. 
How can we do this? So some examples is we need to be actively loving our fellow Christian by challenging and encouraging one another in the word. Um, there should be times where we take the word and we, we, we share it with one another and we really challenge one another. Let's do this. Let's commit to this or encourage one another when there's a need. We need to allow the word of God to come. That's true love there. And also, it's not just kind of the positive side, but the negative side as well. We need to correct and rebuke one another according to the word of God. Doesn't the Bible call us to church discipline, right? Matthew 18. We need to take an active role in correcting and rebuking our fellow brother and sister. Just as a parent disciplines his child in love, so as we uh, fellow Christians, we need, if we see someone in sin, we need to be active in, in really disciplining that sin. Not in a boastful or prideful way, but in a loving way. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Matthew 18.15 If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother, you have won your brother over. Take note of that. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. A way we correct and rebuke one another, we don't want to pass step one, guys. We never want to pass step one. If we see another individual on sin privately, that's how we do it, and that's how we honor God by doing it. The first step should be a private um, rebuking and correcting. Don't want to pass up that. And that's where most of the church discipline takes place. Step one, private. No one else even knows about it in the church between, besides the two party. Um, okay, so that's one, that's point number one. We need to be actively involved in loving our fellow brother and sister by spurring them on to holiness, spurring them on to righteousness. Number two, Love is not concerned with self-interest, but as members of a family, looks out for the best interests of others first. Love is not concerned with self-interest, but as members of a family, looks out for the best interests of others first. Let's look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. These two commands are related to one another. Being devoted to one another in brotherly love and giving preference to one another in honor equal uh, one another. Okay? When you're in brotherly love, you're giving honor. And when you're honoring your brother, you're being devoted to brotherly love. Okay? So let's look at the first phrase, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Literally, it's loving dearly in brotherly love to one another, or in brotherly love to one another, loving warmly or with warmth. There's an there's a emphasis here by two Greek words. It's almost repeating itself. It's like brotherly love, brotherly love, okay, twice. Um, the two Greek words are philostorgoi and philadelphia. We know the second one, um, it's a city. Um, typically, the first one, philostorgoi, is a love for a parent, a love of, for, of a parent for a child. Okay, it's a familial love. Philadelphia 
is what? Brotherly love. Love for our brother and sister. Okay, the city of brotherly love is Philadelphia. A combination of both of these words gives this point. There is to be a sense of family. And you notice in the point there, I said, as members of a family, there is a sense of family belongingness that transcends immediate blood family ties and does not um, depend on ethnic, ethnicity or um, natural birth, but there is a bond in the church that is deep because it is a bond built on Christ and the Holy Spirit. We are the Lord's family. Let me give you an illustration. My mother shows this philostoigoi, but in reverse. It's not a love for a parent for a child, but a child for her parent. Um, you may not know, but my grandmother, my mom's mom, has been suffering in various illnesses. She's 88 right now, so she's fairly old. But my mother, she's unbelievable in her love for, for, my, for my grandmother. I've never seen someone love a family member like my mother has. She, when my, my, and also her brothers too. It's amazing. They have such a tight bond. She would go there and she's a registered nurse, um, although she's a florist now, but she was a registered nurse. And she would just, you know, rail the doctors. What can we do? No, I think we should do this and talk. How can I help her? You know, what can we do better? And she's gone through surgeries, hip surgery, um, intestine surgery, different surgeries, and she's fine now. And the doctors are like, they, they bring her back and they're like, you know, it's amazing. She was like, her uh, kidneys were 30% working and now she's come back two months later and they're working 65%. That's unheard of. Oh, you guys must be really taking care of her. And she, my mom does. Like she spends nights, bathes her, walk, you know, just does tons of stuff just to make her um, more comfortable. And she's a really a challenge to my faith as well. Um, but Paul is saying here, heartfelt concern and care for the family should not only be like this kind of relationship, but even greater. Isn't that amazing? Our heart for our concern and care for our family should be a mark of the church. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, let your love of the brethren in the faith be as though you were brethren in blood, end quote. That's a great challenge, isn't it? We all love our families, but do we love our brother and sister like that? Let's move on to the next phrase here. Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. Now the translation of this verse is debated, but I think the NAS has it right. It gives preference to one another in honor because it's related in structure and content to Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Honor or respect here, um, presumably, is not an honor due to any terms of status or intrinsic quality due to the person, but it's in terms of membership to the body, verses 3 through 8, and of that familial, the family of God attitude that we're having um, earlier. Really, it's to esteem more highly, give pride of place to one another in self-esteem. 
So Paul is telling the Romans not to push for first place for themselves, but seek to honor one another first before yourself. He's not advocating hypocrisy, but humility and love that eagerly seeks and rejoices and honors the good qualities of believers rather than ourselves. So love is not concerned with self-interest, but as members of the family of God, looks for the best interests of others. Now let's apply this. Let's apply this. First of all, when we consider the first uh, exhortation there, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, we ought to consider our fellow Christians as family. Okay, we ought to consider our fellow Christian as family. We ought to be devoted to loving our fellow brother and sister as we are devoted to our natural family members. That means denying our own self-interest and looking out for the other. That like an older brother looks after and cares for his younger brother, we need to concern ourselves for the best interests of others. You know there was a time uh, just recently when, even when, when believers come to our church and not directly part of our body, we need to accept them into our family when they're here. We've got to really uh, be aware of that, guys. Um, I was, I was um, relayed a message that a, a fellow Christian came here and that person didn't feel at home here. And this person was definitely a Christian and was kind of disappointed and I, I felt grieved I was wow we didn't welcome you know we have like newcomers ministry in place and those types of things but we as each individuals have to take up the call to really um, really uh, display our familial love to one another even to those who may not be a part of our church body secondly it means seeking to honor our fellow believers seeking to honor our fellow believer. This means seek to abstain from talking negatively about your brother and sister in Christ. It's one application. Abstain from talking negatively about your brother and sister in Christ. I can give this as an example because they're not here. James and Sarin are a great example of this, especially Sarin. You know, I can like kind of joke about James, but she will never, even jokes, she said she won't, she won't laugh. She won't, uh, if it's James, she won't, if it's anything negative about James, even if it's little, she will not go there. She will, she will always give him the benefit of the doubt. She will always give the positive. You know, that, that's a great, I noticed that about her and she will, she's always seeking to honor James. Well, you know, that's how we all should be toward one another. There should be no room for gossip about our fellow believer negatively. We should refuse to ridicule our fellow brother and sister, whether it be on the basketball court, whether it be outside the church, whether it be any place. Refuse. Don't go there. And if you hear it, abstain. Don't participate. Seek to honor, respect. Uh, you know, it's to honor Christ. To honor Christ is to honor our fellow brother and sister in Christ. So that's another application. So, number one, not uh, it's based on righteousness. Self-interest uh, shouldn't be concerned with, but members of his family look out for the best interest. Number three is love is not lazy, but eager to serve. Love is not lazy, but eager to serve. 
Verse 11 says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. These three phrases are all closely related. Let's look at the first phrase. Not lagging behind in diligence, or NIV says, never lacking in zeal. This refers to, um, not lagging refers to indolence, slackness, or laziness. It describes a person showing hesitation through weariness, sloth, fear, bashfulness, or reserve. It's the same word that's used uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Proverbs, where we see the lazy man is, is, is called a fool continually. This is the temptation to lose steam in our lifelong responsibility to the reverence of God in every aspect of our lives, especially in the pursuit of what's good, pleasing, and perfect. Instead of caving into inactivity, believers are to be diligent, earnest, and disciplined. Where zeal is needed, someone said, there must not be lazy people. Next is fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. It's also um, literally with respect to the spirit boiling. Okay, literally that's what it means. Zeo in the Greek means basically to bubble or to boil with the thought of some sort of heat causing that bubbling. And so that's why when it says here, um, be fervent in spirit, I think it's talking about the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit who is the flame and it's us who are bubbling over in fervency. Paul is not referring to something that occurs as a natural process, but this is a result of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So fervent in spirit, and then finally, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. And I, these are interconnected. The real proof of, of the presence of this fire of the Spirit is not ecstatic or religious excitement, but renewed energy and determination in the humble and obedient service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bubbling with the Spirit is checked by how you are serving. How you are serving. I remember a song I used to sing, which I don't sing anymore, called Light the Fire Again. It's, it's, it's a song where you're just kind of like pumping yourself up to, to kind of, Lord, you know, I, I want to be on fire for you again. But really, I think through this passage, we learn that if you want to be on fire, you should be, you should be out there serving. You shouldn't be praying really for it, but you should go out there and serve. Um, notice that not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord are all related together. And especially when related to fervent in the spirit, we can see in the Bible and in church history how this Fervent in the spirit has been open to abuse. So Paul is quick to say, being set fire by the spirit is reflected in our service to the Lord. It's not enthusiasm or self-centered, um, a self-centered display, but it's enthusiasm of humble service. So applications. First, we need to be fervent in spirit by actively serving the body and its members. Laziness or lack of service reveals our lack of love for bro brothers and sisters. We shouldn't have the, the attitude that, oh, someone else will take care of the need, or someone else can serve, but we must have the attitude that I want to serve, and I'm looking to serve. If there's a place to serve, I'm there. Don't be lazy, don't be indolent, um, serve. 
And then secondly, serve faithfully. Remember, your service is not because, first of all, that, you know, I really like doing this. You should like to do it, but it's not because of you, first and foremost, but you're serving because you're serving the Lord and you're loving your fellow Christian. So, love is not to be lazy, but eager to serve. Fourth is, love is not disabled in difficulty, but prayerfully rejoices in hope. Love is not disabled in difficulty, but prayerfully rejoices in hope. Verse 12 says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. Now these, as the others, are related as well. Rejoicing in hope, persevering, and devotion to prayer. Rejoicing in hope, this hope, as um, you probably know, has a sense of confident trust, a sure hope, not the sense of, well, I hope it'll be a nice day tomorrow, um, expectation, but it's a confident trust. Believers are to be filled with joy due to the hope that awaits them. Um, joy evaporates when hope vanishes, and thus the fires of joy can only be stoked by the, by the focusing on hope. Our hope should be in contrast to the world's view of hope. Um, the unbeliever reasons, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the Christian should have their eyes set upon Christ in the hope of the future glory in Christ Jesus. That leads us to the second thing, which is related, persevering in tribulation, or patient in affliction, or steadfast in affliction, or enduring in affliction. This persevering is hoopmeno. It is endure, or stand one's ground, hold out. It's not a passive connotation, but it implies a positive attitude to suffering. It's not just taking it on, but it's willfully having a positive attitude throughout the suffering. And this is something that we have to learn because we're all going to suffer at some point in time. We are called to suffer because Christ suffered. But we, as in Romans earlier, Paul said, are to persevere in difficulties. Romans 5, 3 through 5. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Finally in this section is devo devoted in prayer. Devoted in prayer. Distressed by pressure from without, by affliction of the world, and unrelenting hostility and danger. Um, there's always a danger of succumbing to the inward anguish. The natural result for the Christian is to be down on his knees and praying. Frequently, this term devoted is connected with prayer in the New Testament. This word devoted means to busy oneself with, be devoted to, hold fast. It's related to what Paul says, pray without ceasing, unceasing prayer. It doesn't suggest a, a, just a one time or a few times, but it, it's, it's talking about a, a, a habit that needs to be maintained above what is naturally inclined for the person. 
We need to be disciplined and persistent in prayer, and it's necessary for the Christian's life. Calvin, kind of summarizing these three, three phrases and referring to rejoicing in hope and persevering in affliction, says about prayer, and I quote, But as both these are far above our strength, we must be instant in prayer and continually call on God, that he may not suffer our hearts to faint and be pressed down or to be broken in adverse events. Paul not only stimulates us to prayer, but expressly requires perseverance in prayer. For we have a continual war warfare, and new conflicts daily arise to sustain, sustain which even the strongest are not equal, unless they frequently gather new rigor, that we may not be wearied. The best remedy is diligence in prayer." End quote. So our application for this section is very simple. We ought to be reminded of the hope that is wrought through Christ Jesus, and we ought to be praying without ceasing. Praying for all our needs, not just some. Praying for those who suffer. Praying earnestly. Kind of general there. But let's go to the last point here, number five. Love is not selfish but goes out of its way to be generous and hospitable. Love is not selfish, but goes out of its way to be generous and hospitable. Verse 13 says this, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Here we find some practical aspects of love as well. Here when Paul says contributing to the needs of the saints, need here means, um, can mean need in general, but here it talks about personal difficulties, particularly financial and daily necessities. Financial and daily necessities. This word contributing is the verbal form of the word we know, koinonia, which is fellowship, right? However, Paul is not urging us to have fellowship with the saints, but to have fellowship and participate in the needs of the saints. We are to contribute, to share. And here we have a reference to financial or material contribution. That's fellowship, Paul's saying here. Isn't that interesting? Um, Koinonia, is, we think of as hanging out or just spending time with Christians or sitting down and talking about the Bible or, or those things, right? But fellowship here is believers helping other believers in financial distress and material need. That's fellowship. It's new, new to me. Um, understanding that is very important. And the second aspect is practice hospita hospitality which is related. This was very, very important during the, the time of uh, Christianity when this letter was written. Um, it was not always possible to stay in inns, and in, in some cases, inns were not available. But Christians like Paul traveled widely in exercise of their ministry, and it mattered greatly that wherever they went, they found hospitality among believers. Therefore, in the New Testament, frequently it urges Christians to offer hospitality to others. This verb, practice, is unexpected, and it points to vigorous effort. Paul 
does something more here. He's saying not just whenever you have an opportunity, practice hospitality, but he's saying pursue hospitality, run after it, a vigorous effort. Um, it it takes, means taking the initiative in providing hospitality. One commentator says this, and I quote, Christian hospitality must inconvenience us more than it, of the world. We do not choose our time or our guests. You know, unbelievers can be hospitable. You know, you invite over for watching, to watch a football game or a basketball game or something like that. Um, and they do that all the time. But something more is written here. Practice hospitality means to going into in uncomfortable situations or maybe situations that um, with people you may not be familiar with who are Christians and inviting them to your homes, inviting them to lunch, etc. One real uh, illustration of this are, are the Smiths. When uh, James, Bob, and I went up to the elders conference a couple years back, they just opened up their homes. They didn't know who we were at all, but they opened their homes to us. And they really showed their love um, through the meals and this fellowship, etc. So as an application, we as a church ought to pursue and seek those in the church who are in financial need or material need. Pursue, ask, seek out those who need. If you have some, something you can give, then pursue those things. And we need to be hospitable by going out of our comfort zone and seeking those we may, we may not know very well. When new visitors come to the church, uh, we have a great newcomers ministry, and we just love it. Um, don't just depend on the newcomers ministry to, to meet them, okay? Oh, they're taking care of it. No. One way we can practice hospitality is going there and introducing ourselves and really showing our love for the new um, visitor as they come, especially uh, if they're fellow brothers and sisters um, as well. One way... Um, I see in the church that we have done uh, contributing to the material needs of the saints is what's going on right now, Meals on Wheels. People like going to the people who just had newborn babies and giving them food. What a great way to contribute. Um, also, I know many brothers in the past have helped others move. What a great thing. Who, you know, they're moving, and especially sisters, they don't have the strength to carry all that stuff, and they don't have pickup trucks. and so. Go over there and help them. That's another great way our body is doing that. And so we should do even more. Well, in conclusion, we have learned some marks or some characteristics of love in the church. There is to be a love in the body that gives priority and preference to fellow Christians. And this, there is to be a brotherly love that just exudes in our lives. So let's review Love is not directionless emotion, but based on righteousness, verse 9. Love is not concerned with self-interest, but as members of a family looks out for the best interests of others first, verse 10. Love is not lazy, but eager to serve, verse 11. Love is not disabled in difficulty, but prayerfully rejoices in hope, verse 12. Love is not selfish, but goes out of the way to be generous and hospitable, verse 13. We desperately need more and more evidences and experiences and expressions of love at Cornerstone Bible Church. Um, we do love one another, but as Paul says, 
let's excel even more, right? I have taken these words of scripture personally to really step up in my love for my fellow Christian here, here at Cornerstone. And I hope you have and will as well. May God grant us the grace to do so. In Jesus' name.